Well, thank you for the joy of being together again. This is our uh, look at the practical implications of union with Christ. So you see the subtitle, Scripture, History, and Practice. Our first uh, session tried to give us a taste of some of the biblical language of where we see in Christ and with Christ. What is the concept? History, we looked at three theologians last time together that tried to shape this. Uh, St. Patrick, uh, we also looked at Bernard of Clairvaux and then John Calvin. Tonight we're going to be looking at the practical implications of this. And uh, you may remember uh, that uh, Pastor Anderson said last Sunday night, well, John Calvin gave us the, the lecture tonight. He gave us all of those practical implications. So we got to go back and review them because he pointed that out and he's absolutely right. So we'll do that. But so let's do a quick review of just a few basic key ideas that hopefully you're building on these ideas, learning them, and you'll also uh, hopefully keep the bigger picture together. And if you've missed some, this will help fill in some of the gaps. So first of all, we said there are some really big ideas that we want to put together when we talk about the doctrine of salvation. First of all, there's the idea of the history of salvation. That's the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end as God is redeeming a people for himself. Uh, the language of the theologians might be historia salutis. Then there's the accomplishment of redemption. What happens in space and time and history in Christ, it is finished, is the declaration of the Lord. He accomplished redemption. But that accomplished redemption that takes place in the whole sweep of history needs to be applied to each individual. And so that becomes redemption applied. And that book by John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, you can see where he gets that language. It's, he's saying, this is what Christ did, this is how it applies to you. And when we sing the song Amazing Grace, we're talking about our experience of that redemption in our lives. And then there's the idea of the order of salvation. How do these great redemptive benefits become ours? Uh, we have the idea of eternal election. We have calling in time. We have regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification. Uh, then we have ultimately glorification. That idea of how they sweep through the logical order of salvation. Each of these are great subsets of studying the theology of the Christian doctrine of our salvation. I did draw a chart for that. I didn't bring the whiteboard. It might have been erased by now, but you know, it's, it might be floating around in a back room somewhere if you want to see that. Is it still there? No, you don't need it. You don't need it. It's, I just want you to know you can go see it when you want to, okay? It's still there. All right. We looked at John Murray, this so wonderful theologian, founding professor at Westminster way back in 1929 and served for a whole career as a young professor. And he says these three statements. I hit them again because he's talking about all of these great things we've talked about, these four points, and he says they're all subsumed under the language of union with Christ. Union with Christ captures everything. It's very individual, but it's sweeping in its implications. And so John Murray puts it this way. Union with Christ is a very inclusive subject. The wide span of salvation from its ultimate source in the eternal election of God to its final fruition in the glorification of the elect. It sweeps from eternity to eternity. Union with Christ touches everything in the, of the believer's experience from eternity to eternity. It's not just a phase of the application of redemption. 
It underlies all the application and accomplishment of redemption, what Christ did, our experience of salvation, all of that is also within union with Christ. And so he will summarize by saying union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. So this is a phrase we should use often when we talk about our gospel message. It's being connected with Christ that explains everything in our salvation. It is the central truth of our faith. Now tonight, what does it mean to live in union with Christ? Obviously, we've been touching on aspects of that, but I'm going to look at three big points uh, in in different levels. The third one will be the one we will spend the most time on and try to look at practical, specific examples. But uh, those of you that have uh, been experienced with the Reformed tradition I know the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you may have uh, memorized it, have been trained on it. We're going to look at that question tonight and realize it's a wonderful uh, summary of our experience of salvation in union with Christ. We're going to look again at those statements from Calvin we summarized last time and just review them again because they show us how aspects of our Christian life we should connect with the work of Christ. And then some specific examples, areas where we try to work out the idea, how do I do this if I'm thinking about union with Christ? Okay, so here's the Heidelberg Catechism question one. I'm going to ask the question. You all read it with me. Do you have your reading glasses on? Can you see it up there? Let's try try to read it together after I ask the question. I'll read it and you follow along, okay? So what is your only comfort in life and death? Here it is, that I'm not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What we see here, and we're going to come back when we talk about practical implications of union with Christ, it defines our identity. We don't belong to ourselves if we're Christians. That issue of identity touches everything today. Call me by my pronouns, not what you what language requires. I will define who I am, and you better pay attention to that. My politics is identity politics, right? Christians, who's your identity? I don't belong to myself. I am a Christian. Your union with Christ is deeper than anything else about it's deeper than your gender. It's deeper than your ethnicity. It's deeper than your cravings and desires. It's who you are because you are united to Christ from eternity past to eternity future. Christians, we need to really get grasp hold of this. We are united to Christ. And that union with Christ is in life and in death. It's not only just for heaven, but it's for today as I live. And when I die, I belong to my faithful. Why? Because of what he's done. We can see that accomplishment of redemption has been applied. He has paid. He set me free. It has to do with providence. He preserves me. He so preserves me in my union with him that God's will is brought upon me to the smallest aspect of my life. 
that not even a hair can fall from my head apart from God's work to use it for my salvation. Salvation is what union with Christ. And that the Holy Spirit, you see the triune work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is assuring me. The Spirit is bearing witness with my spirit that I am the Son of God. He's changing my heart that I want to live for him. I'm in union with him. It's a beautiful summary of the big ideas of union with Christ. We could obviously do a whole biblical study just on those references that support this. But let's go on quickly to talk about Calvin just to get one of the things about union with Christ are to become uh, cognizant of the images that he uses to describe this doctrine. Uh, We are engrafted. We have communion. We have fellowship. We have adoption. We are in a marital relationship with Christ. So we stop and just pause over this. If I'm going to live practically with this doctrine, these images should be real. So what does engrafting mean? It means something that was once separate has now been made one and the same. Uh, We think of that great image in Romans chapter 11. You remember the story of the olive tree? The branch is broken off. A wild branch is grafted in contrary to normal horticulture. Do you know what the wild branch is? It's Gentiles are being brought into the union with Christ. It's a great story. It's a story of our salvation as a people. We're not the covenant people of Israel, but we've become one. Why? Because the grafting makes that alien part one and the same. You are grafted to Christ. Let's say again, you are joined to Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, you are there, grafted in, inseparably connected. And because of that permanent bond, there is now a communion. There is a reciprocal relationship. Christ is doing something in your life, and you should be strengthening that bond. It's It's not just a communion, it's a fellowship. You are sharing together. Isn't it amazing when you think of what the Gospel of John says? The great Lord of glory says, I call you friends. A fellowship is where you are authentic with a group of people. You're a fellow. means we know each other. We know each other's names. Uh, We're we're not worrying about, well, do I call you sir, mister, reverend, missus? Call my first name. You're in a fellowship. You're in a first name with Jesus. He's on a first name with you. You relate to each other. More than that, you're not just grafted in so that it's inseparable. You're not only communing, both pulling to make the relationship tight. Fellowship so that there's just a natural connection of authenticity. But you're even now family. You are adopted. Your name has changed. I wonder who this Ander was who had so many sons, John. Do you know who he was? He seems like he had sons all over the world, right? Lots of Andersons. I've met them everywhere I go. Quite a, quite a guy. Well, you're, you're a Christian son. You are a Christian daughter. That's who you are. You're family. You know, family is an amazing thing. Uh, when you show up, they let you in. You knock, you come at three in the morning. I, I was just with uh, one of the friends of the seminary this morning uh, for uh, a brunch, and this friend said, I've got to run. One of my families came in last night. They're stranded at the airport. They weren't expecting to come, but they have no place to go. I've got to go home and let them in. Why? Family. 
They've been, we've been adopted. Heaven is our home. You will be let in. When you show up, you belong there. You are family. You have a father in heaven, Abba. You have an older brother named Jesus. And you share that spiritual union through the spirit. But it's even deeper than that. It's not just an engrafting and a communion and a fellowship and adoption, but it is a covenantal link between a bride and a groom. And we are the bride of Christ. We have been married. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a reality by the spiritual grace. We will participate in that wonderful image, but it's already true. We are, if you will, the scriptures say, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. I speak of great mystery. I speak of the church and Christ. We are married to Christ. We are the church. We are his bride. So we need to grab hold of this and say, these are not just abstract ideas. This is the reality. This is my identity. It is your identity. It is the church's identity as believers in Christ. Grafted in, we have a commonness, an intimate fellowship. We are family adopted. In fact, we are, if you will, the true marriage between Christ and his bride. So as we talk about the practical implications of this, this should not be theoretical. This should be as real as realizing I'm part of a family, and I deal with it every day. I'm part of a marriage. I have a spouse. I deal with this as a reality every day. I have a communion. I'm talking to someone who wants to be close to me, and I want to be close to them. I am united, and we can't get rid of each other. We're connected. That should be how we think. I belong to Christ. That's why I don't belong to myself. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is mine. I am his. That is my identity. That's your identity as a Christian. So this is why Calvin will put it so strongly. We see that our whole salvation and all of its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. That we should always say it always has to do somehow with Christ. Always. It is all in him. And so you remember those 19 ifs, I think it's the longest if and then statement in the history of theology. And maybe in the world, for all I know, I haven't found anything to compare it to, but it's quite, so salvation, it's in Jesus' name. Do you want to be saved? Of course you do. You want to be rescued from judgment? Look at Jesus. His name means I save sinners. You shall call him Jesus because he'll save people from their sin. So when you're wrestling with salvation, you say, Jesus. When you tell people about salvation, you share his name. He lives up to his name, and you're united to him. It is in him that you have salvation. Uh, often we need special gifts to do the work that we do in the church or in day-to-day life. Well, the Holy Spirit is the one that anointed Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. And so we look to Christ and say, Jesus, I need Skills, wisdom, strength, guidance, I don't have it. I look to Christ, and that's our prayer. Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one. Will you anoint me with the spirit of wisdom? Will you anoint me with, with the joy that you alone can give? Will you anoint me with the strength that I need for this moment that's overwhelming me? Right now, I cry out to you for the clarity when the confusion I have. So we go through all of these things, and 
Uh, again, we could spend time on each one, and I'm going to look at specifics, but let's just review them. Strength, he is the Lord. The next time that you say, I just don't feel strength, you say, Lord Jesus, you're the Lord. Jesus, right now, I can't do this. But you're the Lord, and I'm yours. Because you're the king, you're the Lord, you have dominion and rule. I'm going to ask you to give me something I don't have, strength to do what I have to do next. I can't do it on my own. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a personal expression of union with Christ. And you know, it's amazing what God's people have done through the years when they admit their utter weakness because then they know they're strong because they're no longer depending on themselves. They're saying, Jesus, you're going to have to work through me now. I have nothing more to give. I'm spent. But you are the Lord. Give me strength right now. It's amazing how often that is reality. Purity. Did any of us struggle with purity? <clears throat> could be watching X-rated movies. It could be pornography. It could be dwelling on off-color jokes. It could be experiencing something that's less than holy. Well, we need to step back and say, Lord, you are the truly holy one. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you became a human being. And I'm united to you. Would you give me purity right now? I'm struggling with this evil thought, this lust, this temptation. Help me to turn from this. We can't do it on our own. But in our union with Christ, we can. As we meditate on who he is and what he's done. Okay, gentleness is birth. We went through these last time. Redemption, passion, acquittal, condemn, his condemnation. Remission of the curse is cross. Of satisfaction is his sacrifice. Of purification is blood. Of reconciliation and his descent into hell. We stop there for a moment. Do any of us need to reconcile with people? This is probably one of the hardest things in the world. Are there some people, you know, I remember being at a, at a meeting where a minister came in and said, he is in a group where there was palpable tension. And he said, all right, I want you all to sit down and close your eyes right now and just think about who you're mad at. And there, everybody's mad at everybody else in the room right now. He said, you can see that person. Are you mad at them? You can feel it. He said, okay, Jesus came to reconcile sinners. Do you think he can connect you with that person you're so mad at right now? He can. Would you pray about that and ask him to do it? Uh, he was so committed to reconciliation that he descended into hell. Now, theologians debate on that, but we know this. His descent into hell clearly included what happened on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might be reconciled to him. He went through the horror of experiencing the wrath of the Father whom he'd loved perfectly for his eternal existence for us. We can find reconciliation. Jesus can do that for us. As much as I'm angry and ticked off and bitter at other people, I can find in him the strength to do what's right. Through the years, that you know, all of us who have had any leadership role know sooner or later People get mad at us. When you're a leader, the part of the job is to make decisions at least 50% or less are angry about. Just the way it is. 
And what do you do? Well, they get, they get really mad sometimes. They say nasty things. They try to do things to hurt you. They mess with your reputation. They cause problems. And sometimes you don't make good decisions, but sometimes you did the right thing, and they're still mad. And what do you do? I have found that through the years I've had to say, I need to try to reconcile with this person who's really angry at me. I may not be able to change what's happened, but am I willing to meet with them? You remember Romans 12. As much as lies within me, I will live at peace with all men. So here's a takeaway for you today. Maybe there's somebody you won't talk to. And there's a broken relationship. Are you willing, by God's grace, to say, Jesus, you are willing to reconcile with me for your sake. I can reconcile with someone else, at least on my side. Maybe the door is locked between you, but it's not locked on your side. You're willing to unlock it and say, can we connect? Can we talk? That doesn't mean you're going to be best friends. It doesn't mean you can change the past. But it means I don't have to live with hatred in my heart. It means that you don't have to be bitter about that because you're united to Christ. He gives us strength to do what we cannot do, what we don't want to do, but we can because we're his. Well, mortification of the flesh, that's a synonym for putting to death the deeds of the body. He died for us. And so does it not make sense that we work at putting to death some of those really bad habits and sins that are in our lives? The Reformed theologian John Owen has the famous line, he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You need to say, what am I doing that's wrong? I need to put it to death. Newness of life. How do I start fresh? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. I'm united to him. That means there's a new beginning for me right now if I will accept that. I'm united to Jesus. There's a new life for me. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. That new creation can be fresh right now. Today I need resurrection power. I don't want to live this way anymore. There may be addictions in your life, things that are just ugly and bad, substance abuse, things that are messing around in your life. By God's grace, you can say, I want to begin, Lord, help me to start new. Any of us want to live eternal life? It's going to be in Jesus that you have it. He is the author of eternal life. He is the eternal one. Protection, security, abundant supply of all blessings. This sounds like living everyday life, right? I'm, I'm going into a really dangerous place. Uh, I want you to know that uh, we all have to go to places we don't feel real comfortable. Say, why do I have to go here? You have no choice. Your, your path goes through that dangerous city, that dangerous block. There's no way around it. So what do you do? Say, Lord, I'm in your care today. I don't know what's going to happen kind of scary moment. Maybe I'm going under surgery. I'm really worried, but I'm in your care. I'm going to trust you today. I'm united to you. I will be safe. I will be protected by you. Nothing is going to happen to me unless you are going to be working through it, so I'm not going to be afraid. Soldiers going into battle who are Christians pray these prayers all the time. Lord, I'm yours. Today there may be a bullet that has my name on it, but I know you'll protect me. Uh, one of our professors at Westminster used to say, 
We are immortal until the day that God says you're coming home. Isn't that a great way to look at life? I'm not going to die too soon. I don't. I travel a lot. Maybe there's going to be a plane that's going to take me. Maybe a car that's going to take me. Maybe cancer is going to take me. Maybe COVID is. Maybe old age is. Something's going to take me if the Lord doesn't come. And you know what? I'm immortal until that day. So why am I so worried? I'm united to Christ. So let's do what we need to do because he's going to keep us as his. And of course, abundant supply of all blessings. Many things we need, we don't know where they're going to come from. And uh, uh, every uh, Christian goes through a time where we say, I have no idea how we're going to make this work. The church is dealing with inadequate funds, inadequate people, personal family budgets, issues. And what do we do? We stop and pray and say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but going to trust you and so i've got so many stories that come to mind right now i could stop and spend the rest of the time just on number 18 but i'm going to keep going if untroubled expectation of judgment are any of you saying oh man i can't even begin to think about standing for the judgment seat of christ where we must all stand before the judgment seat of christ there's some sense in which the lord will evaluate us Isn't it great to know that with all of our failures and our sins, which he knows them all, there's no secrets before God. He knows everything about us. He is also a loving Father who's provided forgiveness. And therefore, we are not afraid. We say, Lord, I have to stand before you. I am forgiven. In short, Calvin says, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. And so following that simple dictum that every place I turn, I ask the question, how does my union with Christ help me here? I hope that's the way you begin to think, having participated in the study of saying, I'm united to Christ. What does that mean for me right now? That's a question we should ask. Now let's take some specific examples that uh, have come to mind. I'll go through some of these. Maybe it will take me the rest of our time, but I hope we'll have some time for questions uh, or maybe some discussion here. So some specific examples of living in union with Christ. Obviously, hopefully by now, I persuaded you that when you say gospel, the good news, you think it's got to be about Jesus. There's no place else to turn. Jesus put it so strongly. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. He is the salvation story in itself. You can see this has implications for how you read the Bible. I remember someone who said, oh man, I'm a new Christian and uh, I've been reading uh, in the Old Testament and I got to get to the New Testament so I can meet Jesus. I said, you're not reading your Bible right. He's everywhere. He's on every page. He is? How? We need to learn to see that Jesus is in the Bible from beginning. Remember, he's all the way eternity past. So he is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. He is the the true Melchizedek that Abraham gave the tithe to. We start learning to go through the Bible and say, we see Jesus everywhere here. So union with Christ makes the whole Bible the story of what Christ is doing. So doing theology. You know, so much theology is done today. I'm hearing everybody's writing books about the end times. People say, oh, I've got this great story about that. I've read this pastor's got a book on the end times. 
I say, that's great. Did you know the Bible said the end times began in the New Testament? It, it did, yeah. The, the end times began in these last days, is how the book of Hebrews puts it. We've been in the last days ever since the New Testament started. And well, what about the Antichrist? There are many Antichrists that have gone out, it says in 1 John. In fact, it says this is the last hour. You know we've been in the last hour for 2,000 years? That's what John says in his first epistle. We are in the end times, always have been. And so there's always some sort of a dangerous assault against the kingdom of God. And there's always the tribulation that comes for Christians who are faithful in the world. And yes, there will someday be an end to history. We don't know when it is. When we begin to see put, people put all the great charts out and say this happened here and this will happen, so this is going to happen then, I always like to say, well, didn't Jesus say no man knows the day or the hour or the time or the season? How come you know it? He didn't know it. He said only the Father in heaven knows it. How did you figure it out when he didn't know it? In other words, our theology is not about getting the headlines of the last day of history right, but it's about seeing how Christ is relevant to this moment no matter what we're facing. It has to do with our understanding of the sacraments. Whatever your belief is about the Lord's Supper, about uh, baptism, about the ordinances of the church, like uh, the right hand of fellowship and ordination or joining the church, every one of them have a connection with showing that we are being united to Christ. Christ should not be absent in our thinking about any of these things, particularly in the idea of providence. The idea of what we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, says that not even a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my heavenly father so that the salvation that Christ is working becomes real in me. More secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. Providence means that God has joined you to Christ and whatever you're facing today, you are being drawn closer to the Lord. And that means as you go through whatever circumstances they are, you should begin to think through the great benefits of what union with Christ means in your life. Number one, it means that when things are going really well, some of you right now say, man, this is, I've never had a better year in business and life and family than this year. It's the greatest. What should you do? Be humble and thankful because that comes from union with Christ. You might say, I'm going through the worst year of my life. My family struggles. My business is bad. My health is terrible. The news is worse on television day by day. I am grumpy and miserable. It's going terrible. You ever feel like that? You say, that sounds like my life, right? Well, if you believe in the providence of God in union with Christ, you say, you know, I have a wonderful security because I know God is going to bring good things. For every believer, no matter where we are in whatever stage of life, we always can say the best is yet to come. God has better things for us. And that is the certainty because of our union with Christ. We belong to him. Heaven is ours, the blessings of God, his purpose at work. And that means if we believe this providence that has us in union with Christ, we can have a wonderful security about the future. I don't know what the future is going to bring, but I know who holds the future. It is the Lord. He's sovereign. 
and I'm in his hand. Okay. What should this union with Christ mean in your devotional life? If you believe that union with Christ is your reality, that means that when you open the Bible and you begin to pray, you are not doing a duty that you've got to check off for the day. Oh, I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. Instead, is I'm going to really get close to the one who loves me more than I'll ever understand. This is my time to become even more connected with the one who loves me. I want to commune with him. I want to be in fellowship with him. I want to delight in the grafting together and in the intimacy of our family life. That that union, that devotional life should be one that nurtures a relationship. It has something to do with our personal struggle with sin. You know, uh, we struggle, every one of us. It doesn't matter how perfect we may have gotten in the eyes of others if we're honest. We, we have thoughts we don't like. We let things out of our mouth that we wish we could take back. We make decisions we're disappointed about. Well, the Lord doesn't give up on us because he's united us. Remember raising your little child, trying to learn to walk, falls down. You say, well, what's wrong with you? You can't even walk. I'm done with you. You would never do that. Say, let's give that another try. Okay? The Lord doesn't give up. How, how about when your child or grandchild comes with that crayon daughter, uh, drawing and says, Grandma, this is you. Or Pop-Pop, this is you. And you look at it and say, well, what is this? This is You crumple it up and throw it away and say, when you figure out how to draw, come back and show me a real picture. Or do you take that and tape it to the refrigerator my granddaughter did that. Isn't that beautiful? She wants to draw a painting of me. You know, that's what adoption means. You're united in his family. He loves you as a daughter and as a son that's learning to live with him. We have this view of God's utter judgment. You're a member of the family. How do you treat your family? You have a good father in heaven that's more loving than you've ever been. And so... That gives us courage to keep on trying when we fail because our sanctification is not being holy and if you mess up, you're done. It's like, okay, you can do better. Now let's try this again. You're going to learn to walk. Thank you for your half step. Not perfect, but I love it. Let's keep working on it. So the support of the Lord. We've already mentioned this idea of personal identity and self-esteem. This is an area where, in, if you think about a Christian psychological approach to the world, union with Christ is extraordinarily important. Uh, many of us uh, have to go through and say, you know, I just don't feel really good about myself. I, I feel like I'm always less than somebody else. It's amazing how that's kind of like the endemic reality of almost everybody you compare yourself against somebody and say, I'm just not good enough. There's always somebody better than me. I'm disappointed with myself. Well, do you see yourself as someone who's always failing because there's someone better? Or do you see yourself as someone that needs to keep on working on things you're not good at yet, but you have an identity that's defined by Christ's love for you? Your esteem is that you are made in the image of God, redeemed by Christ. He is working in you. You have an eternity that will draw you ever closer to himself. And that your personal identity 
is defined by union with Christ. So one of the great theological principles that you'll learn if you start studying uh, in the Reformed tradition that Westminster represents is the phrase of already and not yet. Sometimes you'll hear that. In other words, we're already glorified. Remember we said union with Christ, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, but I'm not glorified yet. I'm struggling all over. But I am that. And so what we realize as we deal with our personal identity and self-esteem, that we need to get the indicative and the imperative right. Remember from your language the difference between an indicative and an imperative? An indicative is a statement of fact and reality. An imperative is a duty, a command. Okay? So what we often think of is, do this, and then you'll be this. And so we hear all the commands and weighty demands of God and the world, and we just feel like we're miserable, we're never good enough. But we have it wrong. We have to put the indicative first, and then hear the command. You are glorified. You are forgiven. You are united to Christ. You are adopted into the family. You are grafted in. Now be who you are. Become what you already have experienced. You're already this, even though you're not yet that. This is the reality of who we are. So part of this idea of wrestling with union with Christ in the very practical area of personal identity and self-esteem is remembering the difference between the indicative and the imperative. The, for the Christian, the indicative comes first, and the imperative follows. You are united to Christ. This is his grace to you. Now, look like what you are. Learn to be who God has made you to be. And that's how we deal with people who are struggling. So I have all these desires that are inappropriate. Yeah. But you're already glorified. You're already forgiven. Now let's begin to set aside those things that aren't right because this is who you are. You are united to Christ and you're going to become that. So be who you are. The indicative precedes the imperative <clears throat> that helps us to define our personal identity. This is a very practical reality. So we could do a whole course on biblical counseling right here, the weightiness of this truth. You can see that as application in many wonderful areas. Specifically in difficult duties. We all are required to do difficult things. And so I, I sat down and say, well, what have been some of the difficult duties I've had recently? And so I'll try to think about how union with Christ tried to help me. Okay, so this is a testimony. So uh, I don't know if you know about this, but I was uh, trying to get down here yesterday, and you Floridians canceled all, all planes. Why did you do that to me? I was stranded. Do you realize the problems you created for me? Well, it was the weather. It wasn't Floridians, but you closed your airport. I couldn't fly in. So my story begins with I had a group of people that were expecting me to come and, and just kind of do a theological question and answer session over dinner, especially called because we had a really good time at a Bible study, and all these people were there, and I needed to get it. I couldn't make it. I had to call up and say, you've invited all these people together. I can't show up. I'm sorry. I said, it's the weather's fault. 
<clears throat> they said, oh, what am I going to do? I've got all these people coming. I've got this dinner, and you're not showing up. And I thought, okay, Lord, what does union with Christ mean right now? Wait a second, Lord. You've shown us at Westminster how to do Zoom. Do you think they do a Zoom meeting? He said, yeah, we can try that. So I've had my first uh, Zoom dinner. I, they, no one passed me the bread, but I did have a chance to watch them eat, and we answered questions. So that was the beginning. That was, I mean, I felt the heat. I was supposed to, I was making every effort to be on time, get there from my busy schedule, and I couldn't do it. And just wrestling in the Lord, what do we do? We solved it. But the problem didn't get well because I had a, a morning duty today, I had a lunch duty today, and I spoke here tonight. And they rescheduled me when they canceled and I was going to miss them all because of this schedule. I said, I can't do that. Uh, John's going to have to come up and make up a lecture on union with Christ. Now, he's a great theologian. He had no trouble doing it. But at the last minute, that's kind of hard. So <clears throat> I said, okay, Lord, I'm in this long line. I've got to get rebooked. I can't wait till Monday to come down here or Sunday night. I've got to get here last night. And everybody needs. And I said, Lord, I'm in your hands. What am I going to do? So I got up to the counter and I said, can I get into Florida? No. I said, isn't there any city I can fly into? Let's look. Ah, oh, there's one seat left on a plane going to Miami. I said, Miami. I know my geography. Okay, I'll take that one. Okay, so <clears throat> instead of leaving at noon, I left. Supposed to have been at 8 o'clock and then it was 9 o'clock and then it was because it was delayed too. I finally took off at 10 o'clock last night to fly into Miami and I had a 8.30 appointment. I said, okay, that's going to be awful late. I, well, I got in at 1 and of course I'd never been in the Miami airport so I have to find my way every place. I'm reading signs if I go the wrong. It's a long, big airport, especially when you're tired of sitting around in an airport for 12 hours and flying to a new place. And so I started to get really grumpy. I said, Lord, what, what are you doing to me? And I said, okay, I'm going to be teaching on union with Christ. And I'm going to believe right now I'm in your care. You let me do a Zoom dinner, and if you want me to show up, you're going to get me to where I need to go. So I kept on going, and of course you had to get a vehicle out, and they had one vehicle left, a giant SUV, which I drove all the way across, uh, the Alligator Alley. So if I met an alligator, I would have won. Physics was on my side. <clears throat> and so I'm driving along, and it's 4 o'clock in the morning when I get here. So I had called the tree on. I said, can I get in? They said, no, someone's always at the desk. So when the lady was giving me all the explanations of all the benefits, I said, ma'am, it's okay. I just need to go to bed. So I, I went to bed. I set my alarm. And I said, Lord, look, I've got an 830 appointment. It's four in the morning. If I miss the 830 service, but I make the brunch, will you forgive me for missing <laughs> Sunday morning worship? I didn't have to preach, thankfully. But I said, if, if you wake me up, I'll go. Well, guess what? I woke up. I was on time. Now, I was pretty tired, but I didn't sleep through the sermon, so I thought that was pretty good. And so I, I made my first appointment, and I was grateful that I did that. But all of that was the chaos of travel. And then, so then I had lunch today, and I finally crashed for an hour and a half. And then I said, oh, no, I've got... 35 minutes to get my PowerPoint done for tonight. So this is what you got. So, so I have to tell lots of stories because that's how it'll fill up the time. 
All right. So difficult travel. I'm united to Christ. The Lord is in charge. I'm serving him. This is your story, too. You don't have to grumble. When, you're, when you face adversity, say, Lord, I'm yours. What do you want me to do with this circumstance? Well, by God's grace, I may do. How about giving compassionate care? Some of you realize how hard it is when you're giving long-term care to a family member who is very ill, and there's really no relief, and you have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. How do you do that? Union with Christ is here. Why? Jesus said, what you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. And we say, Jesus, you're really sick today. I'm, I'm going to love you. Jesus, you're really hungry today. I'm here. That when we see that we are related to Christ, the tedious, difficult things become beautiful. Years ago, I was called... Uh, to help do the work detail at the Christian school where my, where my daughters went. And one of the duties I was given was to, to scrub the floor, which obviously hadn't been scrubbed in one part of the building probably for 10 years. They gave it to me. And so I'm back there grumping away, saying, why am I, these kids are just going to make a mess back here all over again. No one's cared. It's out of sight, out of mind. Why did they give me this, you know, the buildup of this gunk? I've got to clean it up. And I was kind of grumbling. I said, you know, I'm, I'm a theologically trained person. I could be studying. I could be preaching. I could be writing. And here I am cleaning up this muck and mess. Why, Lord, am I doing this? And I heard this little voice, now not quite in a Pentecostal way, but in a convicting way. He said, Pete, don't you know whatever you do for my glory, it has eternal significance? I stopped in my tracks and said, Lord, this is for you. And suddenly that floor was shining and I was rejoicing. So I get to do this for Jesus. This is wonderful. It doesn't matter who cares, whatever they do, it's beautiful for him. And so when we put union with Christ back in our mind, suddenly the things we're doing are beautiful. Another thing that's hard to do is, have you ever found it hard to share your faith with someone? You know, you're going to evangelize and you say, if I tell someone about Jesus... They're going to mock me, or they're going to laugh, or they're going to reject me. And so I've, I've tried to figure out how to do this. Some of you know that I do this, that at Westminster we publish these little Gospel of Johns. And we work with the Pocket Testament League. And I've urged, when we were all in the Westminster COVID diaspora, students spread all across the country, I sent every student five copies of these Gospels of John. And I said, your job is wherever you're at to give these out to somebody that needs to hear the good news. And you know what? Let, let me show you how to do it. Okay. Mr. Wager, you've been really grumpy today. hard to do you we all can do that as easy as that if we believe the gospel's true we have good news why don't we just share some good news with people you can do that if you say i am united to christ it doesn't matter what people thinks about me what people will say about me i love jesus he loves me 
and I'm going to share this good news, and if they reject it, it doesn't matter. I can give it to them. Now, so that's an example, evangelism. Now, you know what's really hard is my job, which is fundraising. Would you like to have the job going around and asking people to give their hard-earned money for something else than what they want to use it for? Well, guess what? I have to do that. And you can really get really frustrated because it's nobody really likes to give away their money to anything. And I, even when God's working, they're saying, wait a second. And so through the years, I have to stay, okay, Lord, as I do my work for the seminary, I'm not doing this for me. It's not about me. It's for you. It's for your kingdom. I'm representing your work, and because I love you, and because your gospel is precious, and I want to have people who want to proclaim it, I can do this hard task that nobody likes to do, and I'll do it for you. And if people say no, and lots of people say no all the time, it's okay. Because it's not about me. I'm united to Christ. And so, Pastor John, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can I give everybody a prayer card about our building project? Let, let, me, let me wrap this up into a little larger thing here. Okay. First of all, it's um, you haven't had much sleep, and I don't want you falling asleep in my doing my answer here, so I want to cut you off on your, on your uh, talk. But what I want to know is, um, Carrie and I participated in a church planting readiness seminar in Lakeland on right. Friday and Saturday to evaluate people to see if they were ready to, to pursue church planting. And um, they, they cited some, some really ugly statistics about the growth of the church within the United States. And I guess what I want to know is, what is Westminster Seminary doing to um, to advance the cause of the church uh, what, what works are you doing you know I love to hear your story about Mongolia but any other stories that you want to share with us about how Westminster Seminary is having an impact here in the United States and elsewhere in the world and then you can make those available okay good well, thank you for that. So first of all, one of the things we're trying to remember, and we remind ourselves of it regularly, is our mission. Westminster Seminary exists to train specialists in the Bible who will proclaim the whole counsel of God for Christ and his global church. Now, that's short enough that you can memorize it and think on it. And we say it often. Why do we exist? Why are we here? We exist to train specialists in the Bible. So the first thing that we're committed to is that when we send students off to presbyteries and they're saying, do you know your Bible? Do you know theology? People say, he went to Westminster, didn't he? Because they know their stuff. That's our commitment. We want people who know the truth of the Bible, that they have an excellent education, and that's one of, so that's part of what we're doing. If you're going to send out ministers, when you go to any professional, you hope he knows his stuff. When you go to the dentist and he takes that thing and he starts grinding away in your mouth, you say, I sure hope he knows what he's doing in there. Or the doctor opens up your body to do surgery. Or the lawyer's writing some statement that's going to affect your finances or your real estate. So 
I hope he knows what he's doing. We want to send out people that know the scriptures, specialists in the Bible. Secondly, people that not only are special, but they can proclaim the whole counsel of God. That is, they have the ability to get out publicly. So there's that preaching, teaching, but the whole counsel, the fullness of what scripture teaches. So that it's not just a couple little truths that we know and that's as far as we go. But say, no, we're going to try to talk about the key issues of the Bible, the big ideas of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that you can talk your way through that and teach it from the Bible. So it's not only that you're a specialist in the Bible, but you recognize the system of truth that, that connects the Bible. That's the theological link. A third part of our mission that we're committed to is to uh, do it for Christ, union with Christ. He's in our mission. We are distinctively Christian. And finally, for the global church, that is, we are sending people out to touch the whole world. So how are we doing that? Well, first of all, for the first time in our history, because of COVID, we now have all of our degrees except for our PhD online. We never thought we would do that, but we now have it, and we have over 700 four-credit students around the world. We have 300-plus on campus, but we've literally tripled the size of our school because COVID has forced us to become an online school, and we've not compromised our content. Because of that, we found people who said, if you're going to go online, we want you to do it with excellence. So I invite you to come and take our Master of Arts of Theological Studies program. It's a good introductory level of serious theology that at any stage of life you can take it if you'd like to be serious about learning. That's one of the things we're doing. But since we're doing online, we've realized that now we have the ability to go into multiple languages. We always had some work uh, with the Korean community, but now all of our whole program, it's been totally captured. It's being contextualized and translated and put online for Korean Mandarin, Spanish, and Arabic. And there are folks who said, we want you to do this. We're standing with you to get it out. It's amazing. Some wonderful grants have come in so that we can become more of a global program than we've ever been able to be. Yes. So is there a demand for Arabic or that we we are it's both but it was really people said to us there is an explosion of a revival that's going on in the arabic world that's hard to believe we think the muslims have totally captured it because of all there's a hunger and there's a revival that's breaking out and their people they're saying we need to be trained and they say we've gotten exposed to historic biblical christianity would you help us get it right now in china we have over 180 students that are operating in a time when all missionaries are sent out of China. The church is being repressed at a, at a level that's been unparalleled for many years. And yet we're operating with our graduates in that context, on the, on the ground and also with online. So because of that, we also realize that if we're going to become a really serious uh, international online program, the credibility of those programs is going to depend upon a really strong training from our local program, our residential program. So some of you know Harry Reeder, who's been here. He's been a good friend of the church, and John 
And uh, Harry's on our board, along with uh, several others, we put together a panel that said, what should theological education look right now at this moment in time for residential students if we have the best possible program we can create? And so we have now launched what we're going to start this fall called our Pastoral Fellows Program. This is a program designed distinctively for people who say, I'm called to be a pastor. And our goal is to make them, by God's grace, to be the best possible person we can send out into the world, especially in the American context. So I don't know if we're going to succeed, but John, our vision is we hope the day will come where people will say, well, the two best Reformed evangelical seminaries in the world are Westminster, Philadelphia, and Westminster Online. And we're working hard to get there. We're thrilled that our students are going out. They have uh, training in uh, biblical counseling because that's such a critical issue in this day with the demise of the family and the problems. They have training in leadership. How many churches get in trouble because pastors don't lead effectively? We've had to address. They have training in public theology as this culture becomes more and more hostile to the things of God. How do we address the issues in the public square with a Christian mind so we'll do it well and still maintain this classic theology of a high view of the Bible and of God's word? So we're working hard to do it. And now, by God's grace, we have 1,000 students. Stu seminaries across America, forgive me for saying this, I wish it weren't true, but they're dumbing down. They no longer require Greek and Hebrew. They're making less and less classes. And Westminster says, that's not who we are. We're going to make it a traditional, excellent education, but engaging the realities that are now before us. So your prayers, your kindness, and your care are really very, very important. So, John, I don't know if you want more specific examples, but okay. Okay. As you know, where, when the president of any institution says, I'm not here to talk to you about money, he's always lying. You know, I just need to realize that. So, I'm here to talk to you about money even though I'm not. So, that's a fib. Now, what I am asking you to do is to pray for us. Why do I say that? Because through the years, I've learned the great truth. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. Like rivers of living water, he turns it whithersoever he wills. And everyone with their own resources are a king over what they possess. I can't make anybody open up their checkbook. I can't make anybody open up their heart. But God does this. And I believe he does it when people start praying. I am a, thoroughly a supernaturalist. God does things that we can't do because he chooses to do it. And he hears the prayers of his people. So while I won't turn away any of your support, I'm not asking for that. I'm not passing an offering plate, but I'm going to pass out some cards, and I'm going to ask you to think about this as a prayer request. There's two cards here. They basically have the same message on the back, and one is a rendering of our academic building, and the other one is of our chapel. Now, what I can tell you about these is, and if you don't take them, you won't break my heart. Remember, I'm united to Christ. I can take rejection now, so it's okay. You can turn it down. It won't hurt me. The Lord's in charge. But I ask you to take it and pray about it with me. And I really mean your prayers. Because God is doing what he chooses to do in the way he chooses to do it. But one, given this global witness that we now have been thrust into, 
This is what COVID did. It's what we were compelled to do now. We don't have a structure that can manage this. We don't have the technological settings and all the things that go with it. And so we have an academic building that's being designed for that purpose so that hopefully for the next, uh, who knows how long the Lord will tarry, but for the next, uh, I hope the next 100 years of us, we're almost 100 years old now, we'll have a facility that will let us capture everything and send it to the world, translating it and impacting the kingdom. Secondly, it's amazing, Westminster as a seminary has never had a chapel. We train people to be pastors of churches everywhere, and we don't even have a worship center. We have, we, literally, Westminster's campus reflects that image of that we are uh, broken vessels of clay filled with treasures. And that's okay, but you know, you need to at least have a vessel that holds the treasure well enough it doesn't leak out on the side. And so we're, it's time that we improve it. So we're hoping to be able to do this. Now, how do you pray for this if you would choose to join us to pray? This campaign started three years ago almost. It was a $50 million campaign. Now, you talk about choking and unbelief. I said, I have no idea how we'll do that. Well, I'm thrilled to tell you that we are now only, we're less than $6 million away toward reaching our goal. I don't know how the Lord has done this, but he has. And so I believe it's of, of him to do it. And I'm asking you to pray with me, and that's my earnest request. You're my church family in Florida. This is a prayer meeting. Will you pray with me that God will help close the gap? I, I've used the analogy, if you like football, not all of you do, but some of you do. You know those last five yards on the football field to score the touchdown? It's like four, four, four tries to get over the end zone, and you're running out of time. They're the hardest yards sometimes. That's where we're at. I don't know how we got down the field, but here we are. And so we're asking people to pray with us to this end. Your investment, I can uh, promise you by God's grace, is to continue that great mission. Westminster Seminary exists to train specialists in the Bible to proclaim the whole counsel of God for Christ and his global church. And I humbly ask you to keep praying for us. And maybe we'll raise up a few more pastors like John Anderson. Wouldn't that be great? Thank God for it. So we praise the Lord for that. So, John, come and pray for us. Would you do that? And I'll yeah. put these out here if you want to take a copy. All right.